continued to do by the power of His Spirit through these early followers. Uh, And just to kind of remind you of what we saw happen last week um, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, pours out His Spirit onto into His people, into these early followers. And the result was nothing short of miraculous. You had wind and fire as God's Spirit moved into God's people. Uh, but as God's people were filled with the Spirit, they also began to speak in foreign languages they did not know. And we said that the reason they did that was because they were surrounded by those from the nations, right? As they begin to speak in foreign languages, it actually begins to draw a crowd. And all these people from the known world begin to hear God's good news in their own native language. And it prompts them to ask this question, what do these things mean? What does this mean? And so, uh, so these people are attracted to what they see and they're compelled to ask for an explanation. And today we're going to hear the Apostle Peter answer that question. Let's start reading in Acts chapter 2 verse 14. <clears throat> but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that there were added that day about three thousand souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Amen. So um I want to, this morning, just kind of walk through Peter's response to that question. What do these things mean? And I I want you to notice that there was a mixed crowd there, that you had some who were genuinely curious. right? They see this phenomena, they hear these uh, tongues being spoken, and so they're, they're legitimately curious. They want to know, what do these things mean? And then you also have some skeptics in the crowd, and I mentioned this last week, but it is kind of, uh, it is kind of comforting that even, even when the Holy Spirit is present and the Apostle Peter himself is preaching a sermon, there are still people who are dissatisfied. Um, even in this group, even, even as, uh, in this moment of great outpouring, there are still those who refuse to believe. Uh, and, and what they say is, ah, these people are just drunk. And so what I want you to notice is that Peter starts right there. Uh, Peter begins where they are. Right, he, Peter. Uh, what we see Peter doing here is just lay out the good news. Right, he just lays out the gospel. So this morning, I just want to walk through Peter's presentation uh, and hear it and see what we can learn from it. And so, first, I want to look at Peter's introduction, and then I want to look at actual Peter's actual gospel, this good news that he proclaims, and then I want us to see the response of the crowd. So, uh, Peter's introduction, right? So, so there are others, these skeptics in the crowd, who say, ah, these men are just drunk. And so Peter starts right there and he says, actually, no, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Now, you may know people uh, who are drunk at nine in the morning, uh, but that is usually pretty rare. Right, uh, so so Peter says, no, no, no. This isn't. This is. They're not drunk. It's just nine. Uh, they haven't had a chance to, to to get there yet. Right. What you're seeing and hearing is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy. It's actually a fulfillment of Joel chapter two, and then he goes on to quote from the Old Testament prophet Joel. And what Joel was doing several hundred years before this moment is he was declaring to God's people signs that the last days were approaching. 
He was, he was letting them know these, God was telling his people through Joel, this is what's going to happen when the last days approach. Uh, my spirit is going to be poured out. Now in the Old Testament when we see the Holy Spirit, uh, typically what the Holy Spirit does in the Old Testament is he, he fills certain people to accomplish a certain task. Uh, we see this. Uh, we see this all the way back in Exodus when when God fills those who were building the tabernacle, right? As they were building this worship space, they were filled with the Spirit to accomplish that task. Well, what Joel said and what Peter is referring to is that in the last days, that God's Spirit was going to be poured out not just on certain leaders, right? Not just on the prophets, uh, not just on David, not just on Moses, not just on certain people for a certain task, but He's actually going to be poured out into all of God's people, right? Uh, and that's the the the. He says, your sons and your daughters, right? Men and women, old and young, servants and masters, right? There won't be any distinction in God's people when it comes to the Holy Spirit, but all will be, uh, all will receive the Spirit. And they will all prophesy, and that word prophesy in general means to speak God's words, to speak God's message. And so Joel is saying that in the last days, all of God's people will have God's spirit to speak God's truth. Not just certain people. All of God's people will prophesy. This, Peter says, is what you're seeing and hearing. This is what you're experiencing. Um, And a couple of things I want to notice about this. One uh, is that Peter starts where they are. Right, he he answers the question that they're asking. So when we when we go to talk to people about Jesus, are we paying attention? Uh, are we listening well enough to answer the questions that people are actually asking? Are we addressing people where they are? Uh, and then what Peter does, and so this is actually the first of many speeches we're going to see in Acts. And actually they're probably all summaries, right? It took me, I don't know, just a few minutes to read what Peter spoke. The odds that Peter only spoke that you know, in about five minutes time on Pentecost is, is, is unlikely. In fact, we see Luke goes on to say that he exhorted them with many other words. So this is probably just a summary statement of what Peter said. Um, but, but notice that uh, in this speech, as he talks to this primarily Jewish crowd, this crowd would have been, uh, remember from last week, Jewish worshipers from around the known world, they've come to Jerusalem for this feast, and so they're, they're people who recognize God's authority. Right? These are not unbelievers in the, in the strict sense of the word. Right? You have Jews and you have Gentile converts to Judaism. We call them proselytes. But they're there to worship God at Pentecost. And so what Peter does is he draws them, he points them to their scriptures. Right? He points them to an authority that they would recognize. These Jewish and Gentile worshipers would have accepted Joel's words as God's words. And so Peter goes there to make his case. And then notice what he does next. Right? He finishes reading Joel with these words. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, 
the Lord. In the Old Testament, that that's God's name. That's His personal covenant name. In decades past, we translated it Jehovah. More recently, we translate it Yahweh. There's a whole story behind that that's really not all that exciting. We can talk more about it. But however you translate it, the Lord is God's name. And so for these worshipers, they would have understood, they would have, they would have understood that to mean the God of the Old Testament. Everyone who calls upon His name will be saved. Well, notice what Peter does. He connects what he connects that verse into what Jesus has done, right? He says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. So what Peter is doing is he's saying, Jesus is Joel's Lord. But if you want to know how to be saved, you must hear about Jesus. So Peter draws this connection from Joel's promise to Jesus' fulfillment. What Joel promised, Jesus has provided. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one who saves. Now let me show you how. And Peter goes then into the work of Jesus. And he, in Peter's Gospel, uh, he lays out the life of Jesus in four stages. He talks about his life, he talks about his death, he talks about his resurrection, and his ascension. So Peter's Gospel, we could say, has those four parts to it. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Let's talk about Jesus' life in verse 22. He says, Jesus was a real man. And he was attested to you by God, by signs and wonders and miracles. So, so God showed his divine power in Jesus through those miracles. And he says, many of you know this because you saw it. You, you witnessed some of these things, right? So, uh, Jesus' life is clear, was evident to you by the works that he did, by the miracles that he did. Uh, this Jesus, verse 23, uh, was killed, right? He talks about Jesus' death. And I want you to notice how he frames this. Man did it, and God planned it. Right? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, so we could ask the question, who was responsible for Jesus' death? Is it man, or is it God? And the answer that Peter gives is yes. Both. Jesus was delivered up, handed over, according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. Jesus' death was not a surprise to God. And we talked a lot about this in Luke because we saw Jesus himself referring to it often. Jesus knew exactly where he was heading and he voluntarily went there. Jesus was not in a panic uh, as he went to the cross because he didn't, this was not something he expected. He knew where he was going. Jesus was delivered up according to God's plan. And yet, it was the hands of lawless men who crucified and killed Jesus. Right? That man, so God planned it, but man did it. Right? Uh, in fact, Peter says, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now we're going to come back to that you in just a minute. Um, but, 
Men did it, right? The Jewish authorities conspired against Jesus. They handed him over to the Roman authorities they were, who were responsible for executing him. But God planned it, right? It was, it was no accident. God was not caught by surprise. Rather, it all unfolded according uh, to God's foreknowledge. So, what we can learn from that is that God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. Scripture always holds both of those up. Right? That, that man is responsible and yet also God is sovereign. That nothing happens apart from God's will and yet man is responsible for his actions. And that mystery has, called, has been a conundrum in the church for centuries. Right? Nobody, nobody yet has been able to kind of logically lay all of that out. And yet, it is the truth of, uh, it is the truth of Scripture presented time and time again. Right? It's, it's Joseph's story uh, in the last chapters of Genesis. And Joseph even says to his brothers, uh, after they have uh, arrested him, thrown him, arrested him, uh, thrown him in a pit, sold him into slavery after he's been uh, abused by one set of masters to be promoted and then put in prison and then promoted again, right? After all of that happens to Joseph, uh, he is able to look at his brothers and say, what you, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. The evil things you have done, God has meant them for good. It is Job's story. If you read the book of Job, right? Uh, Job was not looking for trouble. And yet, God allowed trouble to come his way. And if you read Job's story, I mean, he's, he starts on a good note, right? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it doesn't get into too many chapters before Job is pouring out his heart to God, cursing the day of his death, demanding an answer. Right? Uh, So, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility uh, are both taught by Scripture. And I think it's this sovereign goodness of God. Now again... When Job is in the midst of the pit, it may not look like goodness to him. And yet by the end of his story, he is able to recognize it. And so sometimes we're not always, we're not always ready to call uh, what God allows in our lives goodness. And yet the repeated pattern of Scripture is that God's sovereignty, right, if he leads through the valley of the shadow of death, there's usually life on the other side. Uh, and the clearest example we see of that is, of course, Jesus himself. That God allows these evil things to happen because Jesus is going to bring salvation through them. God allows these things to happen to Jesus and Jesus willingly embraces them. Jesus is no hapless victim. Jesus willingly embraces them so that life comes out on the other side of death, which is exactly the next part that we see, Jesus' resurrection. Right? Uh, and Peter actually spends more time here. He spends more verses on Jesus' resurrection. And I think uh, there's a couple of reasons why. One... Many in the crowd, especially if they lived in Jerusalem, would have maybe seen and heard Jesus. 
So they would have seen the miracles, they would have heard Jesus' teaching, and they may, many of them may have even been there when he was crucified. However, they had not yet experienced his resurrection. They were not witnesses to that part. And so Peter spends more time here to prove this part. Uh, And, let's be honest, that's a really hard pill to swallow. People don't come back from the dead on a normal day. All right, that, we call that a miracle, right? That, that, that's the opposite of the expected reaction. And so Peter spends more time here. And notice, uh, notice what he says. He says, you killed him and God raised him up. The one that you put to death, God raised from the dead. He loosed the pangs of death. That word pangs refers to birth pains. As if Jesus' resurrection from the dead was a new birth. Uh, Paraphrasing one scholar, he says, "The, the grave is no more able to hold the Redeemer than the pregnant woman is able to hold in her child. Right? That there was no way Jesus could stay dead. God raised him up. Uh, and, and Peter proves this by going again to the Old Testament. By going to a source that his hearers would have accepted. He quotes from Psalm 16, written by King David, where David is talking about, you know, you won't let my flesh see corruption. Uh, you won't allow me to stay in the place of the dead. And, and Peter's point is this. He says, guys, this can't be true of David. David didn't write this about himself. Because we can walk down the street and go to David's tomb and we can see David's remains. Like we know where David's body is. His flesh has seen corruption. He has decayed. When David wrote these words, he was talking about the Christ. He was talking about Jesus. When David wrote Psalm 16 a thousand years ago, he was speaking about Jesus' resurrection. But not only has God raised Jesus from the dead, He has also given Him that place of power and authority. Look at verse 33. Being therefore... Oh, let's start verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter adds his eyewitness testimony to that. Uh, in Jewish court, you needed two witnesses to, to try to prove a case. And so notice that Peter brings... Evidence. He brings witnesses. He brings the Old Testament, which they would have accepted as authoritative, and he brings his own eyewitness testimony. And so by the power of two witnesses, Peter makes his case. And then he says this, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." So what Peter's saying is this, that while human courts condemned and executed Jesus, the heavenly court vindicated Him. The heavenly court exonerated him. Not only was Jesus raised, but he was exalted to God's right hand, was given the place of honor and power, and it is from there that he has poured out the Holy Spirit. And again, Peter quotes David, this time from Psalm 110, again making the point that David didn't write this about himself. David did not ascend to heaven. David did not take that place of honor and authority. Rather, David was speaking about Jesus. This quote from Psalm 110, by the way, is one of the most quoted phrases from the Old Testament in the New. And so there's Peter's Gospel. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' ascension. And he backs that Gospel up with proof. He doesn't just say... 
hey guys, here's what I think happened. Here's my opinion on the matter. Right? He actually backs it up with proof from authoritative sources. And even more than that, I want you to notice what Peter's message is about. As these people are asking, what do all these things mean? Who does Jesus, I mean, who does Peter point them to? Jesus. His message is all about Jesus. He doesn't give them a moral pick-me-up. He doesn't give them, you know, five principles for a healthy, better life. He gives them Jesus. He knows what they need and He gives them exactly that. He gives them Jesus. His message is all about Jesus. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't had a chance yet... <clears throat> Uh, to watch the the documentary American Gospel, Christ Alone. It's now available on Netflix. If you have a Netflix subscription, it's been available on Amazon Prime. Um, It's a long long documentary. It's well done, but it's a little over two hours long. But it is a a great explanation of of the simple, pure gospel of grace. Uh, I highly encourage you to watch it. Uh, one of the things, of the many that I was struck with, but one of the things of the many was that how, how prone we are to make up our own Gospels. How prone we are, like how creative we can get when it comes to saving ourselves. Right? That, that rather, than, rather than go God's way, we're like, well, no, I, want, I want to go this way. Right? How, how creative we can get in manufacturing a gospel that really puts us in the driver's seat. That really makes, uh, really makes me the star of the show. But how, how different Peter's gospel is. That he points them to Jesus. And to Jesus alone. Now, um, notice what he does at the very end. He says, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now that seems a little unfair. Uh, As we're going to find out, there's at least 3,000 people in this crowd. And the odds that all 3,000 of them were even there on the day that Jesus was crucified is, is really small, right? And the odds that actually any of them had a direct hand in Jesus' death, I mean, it was the Jewish authorities and it was Pilate, the Roman governor. Like, they're the ones that, I mean, they, they did the deed. So even if I was just in the crowd or even if I was just kind of a bystander as Jesus carried his cross down the road, you know, like... Surely, Peter, you don't mean that I crucified Jesus. But no, they did. As the hymn says, it was my sin that nailed him there. Right? They did crucify Jesus. It was for their sins that Jesus went to the cross. And if that's true, then do you know who else crucified Jesus? You did. And I did. We crucified Him who God declared to be Lord and Christ. We crucified Jesus. We were responsible for the death of the Son of God. Now notice the response, their response to that assertion. Peter tells them about Jesus. 
gives them Jesus' story, and then he says, and then he tells them what their part was in that story. And you notice what it says. They were cut to the heart. I love that phrase. They were literally stabbed in the heart. When was the last last time you were cut to the heart? Maybe you felt a grief so deeply. Maybe someone had broken your heart. Maybe you'd lost a job or a loved one and you were cut to the heart. You You were undone. That's what they feel. Right? When they hear Peter's charge, they are literally stabbed in the heart. They are cut to the heart. And I love that because it, it tells me that, that Peter's sermon was not some dry, disengaged, academic lecture. Right? His, his audience doesn't sit there going, hmm, that's interesting. I'll have to think about that. Right? Rather, they are, they are in pain over what they've heard. They want relief. And what we call that is conviction of sin. Right? And it's, and it's a key sign that the Holy Spirit is at work. That when the Spirit and the Word work together on the heart of a person, it brings conviction. It brings uh, a cutting of the heart. Oh, that the Spirit of God would pierce our hearts with the Word of God. Hebrews 4 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. If we are going to know the grace of God, we must know that stabbing power. We must have been cut to the heart if we are truly going to know the grace of God. Oh, that we would know that. And it's that conviction that makes them ask, what should we do? What should we do? Peter, please tell us, how do I get relief from this heart pain? And Peter tells them two things. He says, repent. Repent. It means to turn. It doesn't mean to say you're sorry. So much more than that. It means to turn. It means to change your mind, to change your attitude, to change your stance towards Jesus. And while Peter doesn't say believe here, he doesn't say repent and believe, he just says repent, those two go together. Right? You can't turn from something unless you're turning to something. Thomas Boston, a Puritan pastor, said that repentance and faith are the two wings by which we fly into heaven. Jesus put those two together, repent and believe in the gospel. And so Peter is saying, turn from your sin to Jesus. That's the response. And then he says, be baptized. Now, uh, I want you to try to erase from your mind for just a minute all of the things that we typically think when it comes to baptism. Uh, all of the different ideas we have around that so that, so that we can hear this in its context. For a Jew to be baptized would be a shocking statement. For, because it was the Gentiles, right? Uh, we talked about those converts earlier, converts into Judaism. Gentile, when a Gentile converted to Judaism, right, it was understood that he needed to undergo a washing. Right? So it was the unclean Gentiles who needed to wash, but not a Jew. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm a part of God's holy people. I don't, I don't need a bath. And Peter says, actually, 
you're all filthy. You all need to be washed. Now Peter isn't saying that baptism is a requirement for salvation. And there are many places in Scripture we could point that to. Peter would even be conflicting with some things he says later if that were true. So when he says be baptized, again it would have been a shock to his Jewish audience. But what he's doing is he's telling them to demonstrate their repentance and trust in Jesus by accepting baptism in Jesus' name. Right By being baptized into someone's name, that would demonstrate that that person has authority over you. And so, to be baptized, basically you were saying, I need to be cleansed and owned by Jesus. And so, Peter tells them to repent and be baptized to demonstrate that radical identification with Jesus in His death and resurrection. And then I want to close with the the two promises that the Gospel offers. First, forgiveness of sins. And second, receiving the Holy Spirit. John Stott says that the Gospel is the good news not only of what Jesus did, but also of what He offers as a result. That if you believe the Gospel, you receive first the forgiveness of sins. That means that the slate is wiped clean. That there is no guilt. That there is no condemnation. That you are, there is freedom from guilt. Freedom from judgment. Freedom from death. For those who repent and believe in Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. His blood can make the foulest clean. And there is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Not only have I been forgiven of my past... But I've also been given new power to live a new life. To live as God intended for me to live. New life in the Spirit. And notice that the Spirit is poured out, the Spirit is given to everyone who believes. If you repent and believe in Jesus, you receive the Spirit. In fact, you cannot believe without the Spirit. So the Spirit is not some special blessing reserved for a few anointed. Rather, the Spirit is for all of God's people who believe in Jesus. So the two promises of the Gospel are forgiveness of sins and new life in the Spirit. Here's Peter's Gospel and our Gospel. You killed Jesus. Your sin... And my sin nailed him to the cross. But for those who can admit that, for those who can turn and trust in that work, God grants forgiveness and new life in Jesus' name. Do you believe it? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this gospel.